All right, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Honest Defense. Today, I'm so excited to be joined by Matt Balaker. Matt is the author of Greg Giraldo, A Comedian's Story. Greg was one of my favorite comedians. I, I grew up watching him. He was all over Comedy Central back in the day. A tough crowd and the roasts. Uh, I just, I always loved Greg. And this biography is just incredible. It's captivating. He goes in, into such depth into Greg's life and his background. Uh, Matt, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks, Eric. So I want to start, first of all, again, I love the book. I actually listened to most of it on audiobook, which I highly recommend because the, the narrator, it's obvious he knows comedy, but he's not a comedian because he had great, great subtle impressions of, of Bobby Kelly and of Patrice and a great Greg impression. But then also like some of the jokes, the, the delivery was like a little bit off. So, but it was like he overall, he did a great job. So I, I just I loved I have the print book. I have the audiobook. I highly recommend it for everyone. Can you first tell me, like, how did the idea for the book come about? How did you get into this? Sure. Well, I was a huge Geraldo fan. It probably shouldn't come as a, a major <laughs> surprise. And I, I don't know about you. Do you remember Tough Crowd? Of course, I, that, that was my, it's, I, it's still my okay. favorite show that's ever been on television. We're, we're, of course, we're going to dive into that. I love Tough Crowd. Me too. I, I'm still not over the fact that Comedy Central canceled it. That was yeah. one of the first times I sent multiple letters to a network <laughs> uh, asking them to get the show back on the air. So that was really my introduction to Greg Giraldo. Yeah, Although I, I, I interned at Conan O'Brien in like the early 2000s and he was a guest. So I remember watching this dude and be like, he's really funny. And he wasn't a name. So right. fast forward, gosh, you know, 15 years almost. And I was at a desk job uh, that I'm no longer at. <laughs> and I was kind of bored. Uh, and I had a break. And during that break, I went on Amazon searching for a book about Greg Giraldo because I just wanted to read. It was kind of like a, um, a little bit of a, a low point in my life. Like I wasn't like depressed, but I, I just had this pressure of I had a new baby on the way. I had a new job that was okay, right. but like I had been doing comedy, I'd been working in investments, I'd, I was doing like all this like exciting stuff, and I was like, oh crap, maybe like I just have to slow down, and that didn't happen. But what I did want to do was just read more, and yeah. and Geraldo was someone I wanted to read about, and I typed into Amazon, and lo and behold, Eric, there was no book about Greg Geraldo, so that was my aha moment to get started on it. Had you written anything before? Because I can't tell you how many times I've done that, where it's like, I, I want to read about a subject. I'm like, there's there's really no good book on it. And then I'm just like, oh, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll use Wikipedia. That's the best I can do. Like, like what? <laughs> I don't know if it's just if you are that type of person, like, is that entrepreneurial spirit? Or you're just like, oh, there's no book. I guess I'll be the one to write it. Or or had you had experience writing before? Well, I was one of three editors in chiefs of my high school newspaper. So <laughs> I was more than qualified to take on a novel. Uh, no, I think it's ignorance is bliss. You know, I think it's one of those things like they say, no one would ever start a business if you knew how much of a pain it would be to yeah. start. Uh, and, and I had, I mean, I've written jokes. I've written uh, for, I've, I've done a lot of monologue j writing for people. I've done a lot of pilots that didn't get off the air, or, you know, that, that weren't bought. Right. So I've, I've had experience uh, in writing, but never on this level. I just wanted to go for it. Yeah. So as a Conan intern, like, were you able to kind of just hang out and like watch the show? Is that how you got exposure to these different comedians? Like that must've been the coolest job in the world. Oh, it was, it was maybe the uh, career, <laughs> yeah. the peak of my life. It was fantastic. I mean, I was living uh, in New York. My brother worked at ABC News. He worked for John Stossel. So they actually, God, this was great. They had a spare bedroom, which is pretty much unheard of. And so I could stay there. I could walk to 
you know, 30 Rock. 30 Rock, yeah. Where, where, it was, where it was filmed. And I'm, I'm kind of the build of Conan. So they would use <laughs> me a lot, Eric, to like, for lighting. So I'd sit on the desk and like the people would come and I would read some of the stuff and it was a blast. I, oh, that's I, so cool. Conan was one of I, those early days of Conan. I used to stay up late every night to watch him. You know, he was on, he was on like after midnight, I think East coast time. But I used oh, yeah, to, yeah, yeah I, I, he was my favorite late night show back in the day. That's that's so great. That's so I didn't know that you worked for him. So that's it's incredible. So, uh, you know, I want to go back. So I want to talk about Greg and how he grew up because he had a fascinating upbringing. And it, sure. it reminded me a lot of, you know, I know a lot of military kids and military kids tend to have a really good sense of humor because they have to move <laughs> around a lot. Like they have to, they're in new environments all the time. You kind of, the way you adjust is one of the easiest ways is to just develop a good sense of humor, or at least be able to laugh at yourself to just fit into this new environment. Greg, you know, he didn't move around growing up, but he grew up, you know, very blue collar in Queens. And from there went to, you know, really elite schools, went to an elite high school, elite Ivy league schools. You know, it was very different worlds. And I, I kind of know a little bit what that's like. And so I wonder how much of that helped develop his sense of humor just the fact that he had to kind of learn how to fit in you know both in that blue collar world and in the ivy league world oh sure and that's a good point because yeah he wasn't a military kid but there was probably some of the same challenges right for instance like he didn't speak english till uh, he entered kindergarten so for the first i guess five years of his life he only spoke spanish i mean he heard it as i said in in the book in jackson heights uh, but that you know being the child of two immigrants you know you're a little bit of a fish out of water and and now the area where he, where he's from is, is a lot there's a lot more like uh, a, a bigger latin community but there are a lot of irish and italian kids and it was pretty mixed but you know he he stood out um and so i, I think that was probably something that helped influence his career you know not not being quote unquote the insider right right but and what's amazing to me because this is a skill that i have never been able to pick up is you write about at his funeral his high school principal said that greg was was a, a helpful brilliant student like he was able to be the funny kid but also apparently like like for me when i was a kid even i even still have this in me like anyone who's in a position of authority like i automatically have this like adversarial relationship with and i especially <laughs> had it as a kid and it's like i so i could never figure out like you know people like greg who could make anyone laugh like i could never make an adult laugh and a kid laugh you know it was it was i was going to make the kids laugh at the expense of the adult sure. and I, I and again I, was that something natural in greg that he just could kind of fit in and make anyone laugh i i think you could light up a room yeah and uh that this is one thing his his wife told me uh whether it was a parent teacher conference whether it was a job interview because i wonder like on some of the, the things he got i was like why did, why did they hire him right i mean like not that he wasn't smart but pretty much everyone was smart but other people had more you know specific qualifications and she said he could just light up a room i mean whether it was a one-on-one -on -one meeting whether you in front of 20 people whether it was in front of 5,000 people I mean, he, he just had this charisma that I yeah. think, he, you know, he could have been a cult leader. You know? Yeah, yeah. He gravitated towards him. <laughs> well, I guess, I guess we're lucky that he went into comedy and not into cult leading. The jury's still out, but I, <laughs> okay. I, I tend to agree with you. <laughs> so then from there, so, you know, he goes to Columbia and then he goes to Harvard Law School. I mean, he, so he's obviously just a high achiever intellectually. And, you know, as someone, you know, I went to law school and, 
you write about how he kind of, he, it wasn't his dream to be a lawyer. It was kind of a default choice. And I can't tell you how many people I went to school with who <laughs> that's, that's exactly their story. It's kind of, especially when I graduated college, it was the middle of the recession. So it okay. wasn't like there was a whole lot of opportunities anywhere else anyway. So like if you were uh, uh, a relatively high achieving person, like I just, I did well in the LSAT. So I was like, okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess I guess I'll go to law school. I don't really have too many other things to do anyway. And I was like, I'm vaguely interested in that stuff. So okay, let's do it. And was that kind of what you put on your your? Yeah, that's on my resume. Interested in attending your law school? It's shocking I didn't last very long practicing law. I mean, your heart's clearly in the right place. Surprised you're doing this and not at Scadden Arps. Right, right. I couldn't have gotten a job at Scadden Arps. So so Greg goes from law school. You know, Harvard Law School. And then from there, he goes to Skadden Arps, which is one of the top corporate law firms in the country. Was Greg, how much thought did he put into this whole process? Or was it just kind of, you know, once you get into this treadmill you know, in, in the legal world, you're just kind of like, okay, this is the next step and this is the next step. And you can kind of, especially if you're, if you're a really smart guy like Greg, you can go on autopilot and kind of just pass through these hoops. Was, yeah. was that really what, what he was doing? I, I, no, I think you nailed it on the head, Eric. Like, imagine like you're water rafting or something, you know, and, and like you're in your, your raft and there's kind of the currents pushing you along. You might move your oars a little bit to steer one way. I, that's kind of the analogy I, I have in my head with his law career. Like it was more just like, that's the path of least resistance. Right. It was great in school. He was very good at reading. He, I mean, I'm sure he was excellent at math, but that wasn't his strongest suit. So what do you do when you're good at reading and writing and you get good grades and you're yep. not an engineer? You go to law school. And I think the doors just sort of opened for him, but he wasn't the one pushing them open. Right, right. And and again, when when he was at Scadden, you tell these stories about how he was able to kind of have fun with his coworkers, which again was just shocked because when you know, I worked at a big corporate firm, and oh. every day I'm just like I'm just trying not to get beat down by the misery of it. Like I'm just trying to survive. <laughs> and I see Greg, who's I know is miserable. He's just as miserable as I was. But he like, I, and again, I guess that's that's just sort of his personality. Is he said, you know what? I'm gonna make this the best situation I can. I'm gonna make other people laugh in the middle of this miserable job of us reviewing documents for twelve hours a day. And, uh -huh. and, uh, so when did, when did the idea come up for him to start doing comedy professionally or even just, just as a hobby? Cause it didn't seem like, you know, again, it wasn't, he wasn't thinking about it when he was a kid. He wasn't thinking about it even in college or law school. It started to come up when he was actually practicing law. Right. Right. I mean, it, it's, it's hard to say exactly when the seed was planted, but he was a pretty accomplished musician, uh, in high school and college. Like he was even in a band. <laughs> at Columbia. I don't think they ever played much, but I mean, he had the desire to get on stage and he had the charisma. And I think it was really a, an improv ad that piqued his interest. His friend, I think it was Steve Klein, who was a fellow attorney at Skadden Arps, had an ad in the, um, one of those New York, not, not the, um, was the kind of rag that, uh, shoot, I can't believe You're the New York guy. I don't no, I'm, I'm in I'm in California now. Oh, okay, okay. Anyhow, there, there there's a um, there's a newspaper was that would post a lot of ads for acting gigs, and there was one for Tony and Tina's wedding, which was a primarily improvised play, and he went to it. I guess you know he took a break from at work and sort of crushed it. I mean, he was in his early or I guess late twenties, and he was <laughs> playing a character in his fifties, and I guess the uh, the casting 
director loved him because he, he just riffed and, and and was super likable i don't even know if he got the part but they loved him so much and that that's what kind of spurred him on to do an open mic and there were a bunch in fact there was a coffee house uh, a few blocks from the Scadden office and i guess he would sneak out there and so, some of his friends tell me they were at his first it's funny i had a few people say they're at his first one and it's hard right. to say one was his actual first but right. one consistency was he was great i mean relative to the others you know sure. i mean every comedian you're never maybe you but others <laughs> aren't fantastic the first time you grab Absolutely a mic not. um but relative to the other people on stage, he was just head and shoulders above them. So I, I think that's what sort of planted the seed of being a professional comic when his lawyer friends and his, his other people, they're like, oh, and, and the people booking it, they're like, dude, you're really good. Like, you're not just funny, you know, you, you could actually do this. So I think that motivated him to start considering it seriously. And then after that, he was a you know, a voracious writer. Like he, he had these notebooks and he would always jot down stuff. And I, I think that kind of stoked his interest in writing more, those first early gigs. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny how you can tell even, you know, when you're at the open mic level, there are certain guys who you think, oh, they have it. And if they just stick with it, like there was one guy I started open mics with Shane Smith, uh, you know, back, this is when I was living in Utah. And you know, I, I see this guy, and he was—he was a couple years more advanced than me, even when I started. So, so he was kind of already on his way. But I could just tell, oh, this guy's gonna be popular if he sticks with this. He's gonna be good, and and he's on his way now. I mean, he's in New York now, and he's—he's, he's, you know, becoming a headliner. And yeah, it's—it's it's fun how you can tell even early on. Yeah, you're raw, but but there's something there that you know, it's yeah. not that hard to spot that kind of talent. Was he worried about? Because again, I know these guys at these big corporate firms; they wouldn't be caught dead even attending a show at a comedy club. A lot of them. <laughs> like, was he worried about getting caught doing this stuff? Uh, maybe he wanted to. I mean, that's yeah. that's just my speculation. But no, I mean, he wasn't a gunner at Harvard. Yeah. Or you know, he didn't send the front row and you know raise his hand and get all the the answers right. But you know, he was also. Like uh, one of his friends, uh, Dave Diamond, mentioned this, that uh, he wasn't trying to impress anyone with his work ethic <laughs> at SCAD. And right. I mean, they loved him and he seemed to get along well. And he was probably better than he let on yeah. at law. But he, he wasn't, at least in the first few months, on the partner track where right. everyone's like, all right, this guy. So I, I think anyone who's kind of looking for reasons to go to a coffee house or skip out to do an open mic, probably isn't thinking like four or five steps ahead like oh god i hope one of the senior partners right doesn't see me out you know it, it's 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 not even seven o'clock and I'm, I'm outside the office right right I'm, I'm thinking more of like like not even oh i'm not gonna make partner but more like if they see me i'm fired and then i'm i'm out on my ass like that's to me i'd be worried about that he probably should have been yeah like you know i mean if that was his goal but right. i don't think right really yeah and and right and i my guess is he probably just had that he had that baseline level of aptitude. I mean, if if you're able to to go through the places that he went through, you know, Harvard and, and Columbia, and then to get into Scadden, he probably had enough aptitude that he could get his work done and then still have time to sneak out. And and no one again, he's not going to make partner. He's not billing the most hours, but they're probably satisfied enough with his work that they're kind of just they'll leave him leave him alone. Right. And just curious, how how long were you at the law firm? Uh, 
just long enough to pay off my student loans, like three years. Okay. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's and, more than three times as long as draw. <laughs> right. That's true. That's true. I, I I mean I barely made it through. I mean and and I I was I bounced around. I was at a couple different firms because for a while I was like you know maybe I'm just at the wrong firm and and this this other firm will be a little bit better. And you learn very quickly. Oh, they're they're just kind of all the same. And oh no, it's just me. It's I could never. <laughs> I, I guess in my head, I thought, because I could never sit still in class, like like nothing about who I was personally would scream like, oh, he'll be a successful corporate lawyer. But I, I thought, oh, maybe if I'm paid enough that, you yeah. know, I, I can force myself to do what I need to do and, and just didn't did not work out. You know, uh, I always it, wanted to be one of those people and, and could not force myself into into that that mold. So you, you got to capture that. If I was paid enough, I'll. <laughs> Be forced to do what I want to do. Or, right, you know? right. And, and that maybe for some people that works, but just did not yeah. work at all for me. Uh, so you and your integrity. So. <laughs> it really was. I mean, I was ready to sell my integrity immediately. I, that, <laughs> that was not an issue whatsoever. It's just we're all just uh, looking to sell out. It's, it's exactly. hard to find buyers. Exactly. <laughs> that's that's a good way to put it. So. So Greg, you know, he eventually he just he leaves the firm, right? It was less less than a year he's at the firm, and he just yeah. he, he he kind of finally, he said I'm just I'm gonna pursue comedy. Like he had enough early success, I guess, or or was he just fed up with the firm and firm life? He said whatever. I, I know I can't keep doing this, so comedy's what yeah. I love. I'm gonna pursue that. Yeah, I, I like most stuff in his life. I don't think it was hyper thought out. <laughs> right. Um, like he didn't have a a pros and cons list. Right. Um. But I think there were several factors involved one he didn't love it yeah um two he didn't love you know being a real estate attorney uh two he, he had the comedy bug yeah and as you know i think it's kind of it's almost like a, a virus it's like once yeah. you have it it's it's in your dna and and you can't really you just got to own it i think um also he was married or you uh you know, this was his first wife who so right. was quite young and she was a, a dentist and so he had a little bit of a cushion there so we could kind of you know roll the dice a bit sure. and also he didn't and, and this this was interesting to me this was new to me to find out like when he left Scadden, he didn't just quit law that day he quit working for a big law firm but he did work as a lawyer uh for a couple years in other fields in fact one was more this like travel agency gig and i, and I think he had some kind of temp work because you don't even though his ascent was freaking faster than anyone i've really ever seen uh he wasn't making six figures as a comedian right overnight right what was what was that timeline between him starting comedy and becoming you know if not making six figures at least becoming like a headliner because typically fast, fast. i mean like, i mean if if you can make it you know by year 10 if you're 10 years into comedy and you're a headliner that's pretty successful oh yeah yeah I mean, I, I'd say we most, I mean, there's like regional headline. I mean, there's like right, level right. headliners, but I mean, it takes a good 15 years. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the people you'll see at clubs who are headline have been doing it probably 20 years. Right. I mean, but there's going to be exceptions, but he got a sitcom deal two years in. So his, his ascent was like light years ahead yeah. of most. And I think a big part of it, Eric, was he was picked to go to the Montreal Comedy Festival. And he wasn't just picked because he was a nice guy and you know looked good on stage. He, he was picked because he crushed it at the audition. So you know, when he went in it, he was good like immediately. And I think the more he did it, the faster 
he accelerated. And before you know it, he was one of the best in New York. And if you're one of the best in New York, I mean, it's probably changed a little bit now, but I think then if you're one of the best in New York, you're one of the best. Right. And, you know, Montreal really got his name out there. And from that, he got the sitcom loosely based on his brief law career called Common Law. For people who don't know that, the Montreal Comedy Festival, especially, I mean, it still goes on now, but especially, I love reading stories about it in the 90s and early 2000s because that was the launching pad for us. They had they their, their young faces or new faces. Yeah, new faces. Uh, and that's that's where they kind of highlight some of the younger comedians who are up and coming and you know, people from every network, movie directors, writers, will, will tend to watch these new faces and they'll hire guys on the spot from their their set at new faces it's, it's so different now you're like all right yeah. we'll get you a website right. and a guest spot on a podcast exactly like, but then yeah i mean you were signed it would it was life-changing yeah i mean this is when they had tim allen roseanne you know a lot of comedians uh, created sitcoms and they were very successful and so you go there and networks were kind of like throwing money at you yeah and, and he benefited from it but was it it seemed like his heart was never really into that part of the business like today like you said it's maybe by by choice more more by design that comedians don't really go that route anymore they're, they're not going into sitcoms they're, they're starting their own podcast that's really where a lot of comedians are going to kind of expand outside of just doing stand-up is their own podcast back then everyone wanted to be tim allen and ray romano and, and those guys with their own sitcoms was greg was that what he wanted or was it just again did he did he feel like that was the hoop he needed to go through to get to the next level i think he was so green he didn't really know yeah i i mean like tim allen had been performing for decades or at least a right. decade you know roseanne was a huge stand-up right. before her show uh and, and so it was the 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 pathway even jay leno you know like yeah. letterman you're a comedian you work the road you're a headliner then the networks see you then you're on television he was the reverse of that he was a couple years at a law school, not even. And then he does a great set at Montreal and bam, he has his own sitcom. Right. So in a way he didn't climb the ladder, so to speak. So I think when things are just thrown at you so fast, you just kind of go with it. And I think yeah. he went with it. And I, I know he loved the money. Um, he liked the writers, but he was very candid, Eric. Like he wasn't an actor then. He was right. a funny person and there were good actors on the show, but it wasn't, like his perfect right. gig. Right. And he was a, he was a dirtier comics. I think it was just harder probably to fit him into a network sitcom. Like you oh. just, you're, you're, you're putting a regulator on him, a, a guy who shouldn't be regulated. I would love to see him today on Netflix. Or yeah. Hulu. I mean, it, it's a different world when it comes to content and what you can say and the limitations you have or don't have. But back then, I mean, it was a network show. This was 95, I think it was shot. So, I mean, you can only be so funny. Right. Uh, you know, on ABC. So his style was funny. I mean, it was smart, but it could be raunchy. It could be dirty. It could right. be uh, pushing the envelope. And that's not always great. Right, right. That, <laughs> when you're trying to sell, you know, Clorox bleach. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's He should be doing a podcast selling bidets. You know, that's where that's where really he fits in. Like, I would love, I, I was thinking about, like, what would a, a Greg and Patrice podcast look oh, like I, that would have been amazing. I, I that they had to have done that. You know, if they were still alive, I they must have been do, must be doing a podcast right now somewhere. Oh, in yeah. an alternative universe. Yeah, I mean there there's a lot of what ifs, and, yeah. and like I, I thought, um, I mean he would have been a natural yeah. for the Daily Show, um, or yeah. or now I mean he would have had his own thing. I'm sure there'd be HBO deals or Netflix. I mean it, it's so sad 
for multiple reasons that that he's not with us but right. he was just kind of, i mean on one hand and i i grapple with this and we grapple with this in the book is like it, it uh, it's not a what if project yeah that said oh my god like right <laughs> right <you know? laughs> And that's I always hate asking those what if questions because the answer is always well I don't know who knows but you know you can only you can only guess but it's still fun to to oh, speculate. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about Tough Crowd because you you made a face when I said Tough Crowd was my favorite show that's ever been on TV. I'm not exaggerating. I as a kid I. I I used to giggle with delight when it was on because <laughs> I mean, it was on. I was like probably 13, 14, 15, 16 when when it was on, and uh -huh. you know I got into like politics and news very early on. I, I was in seventh grade on 9/11. My dad had just gotten back into the army after that, so I like I wanted to know what wow. was going on. So uh, so I really did start getting into that stuff, and you know, I started watching The Daily Show, and and I liked The Daily Show. I liked John Stewart, but. I was I felt like with him you kind of you kind of knew what he was going to say or yeah. at least you knew his perspective. Then right after the Daily Show was Tough Crowd and that just that hit something in me because it was so much more raw and it was just these guys yelling at each other. You didn't know who was going to say what and it was these these huge personalities. It was it was Greg and it was Patrice O'Neill and Jim Norton and Colin Quinn and you know they Nick would have DiPaolo, Nick DiPaolo. Like, yeah, this great dynamic. Yeah. yeah, I mean I mean and, and, yeah, yeah. And then they would bring in they would have guests. They, I mean George Carlin was on one time I remember and and they had Joe Rogan when he was a kid on. Oh, he's uh, a baby. They had yeah. Kevin Hart when he was looking. Oh, I, I don't he even probably remember. Probably in his early twenties, but he looked twelve. You know? Yeah, yeah. So talk to me. I I didn't know the story of how it started until I read the book. I knew about the the, the comics table at the cellar, but I didn't know about how that led to Tough Crowd. Could you get into that story a little bit? Sure. There is a restaurant above the comedy cellar called the Olive Tree, and the owner, uh, well, the owner at the time, Manny Dorman loved comics i think that's that's a huge reason why it's as successful as it is today and i guess one day uh when nick DePaulo got back from california uh he said something like can we just have our own table because he had to wait with like regular uh, guests at this restaurant and like a day or two later there was the comics table and from that that's where you would sit and you, you it, it's kind of a a badge of honor like you have to be performing or you have to be a regular there to to be welcome on the table. And so uh, th these comics would kind of BS before their sets. And Colin was sort of the ringleader uh, up there. And they'd argue about all sorts of things, you know, from politics to Jim Norton's shirt. And so uh, he said it was just really funny. And, and some of the, the topics they would discuss at the table would uh, translate to downstairs, you know, because like something's on your mind and, right. and you're like, all right, I just thought of something funny or I want to get it off my chest. And so I'm gonna go share it with an audience. And Colin Quinn said the audience was very receptive to it. And it certainly wasn't politically correct. And this was at a time when, you know, this was early 2000s, 2002, you know, shortly, like 9-11 was always a big topic. But it was still a pretty PC time, you know, at least you know, you know, we couldn't see the future, right. but you're like, oh my God, you can't say this. It's not PC, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but Colin Quinn said, you know, this, the audience loved it. And so that was you know, the genesis for Tough Crowd. Yeah. 
and and again it, it's one of my favorite shows if you guys are into comedy at all you know the, that old school comedy it's hard to find tough crowd like I, there's there's videos there's clips of it on youtube and they're but, generally crappy like the yeah yeah but it, like you can't i was looking for it like on amazon prime or it, it's hard to find, find it. yeah, yeah no. it was such a great show and that whole era of comedy central i mean you had the daily show and you had tough crowd you had Chappelle show and crank anchors and south park and the man show and and comedy central was doing all of the best uh specials at the time it was fantastic. It was a magical time. Like what, what was it about that time that, that allowed that, you know, that one place to be, to be everything when it came to comedy? It's such a good question because yeah, you had, uh, I'm sorry, South Park, yeah. which came out a few years before the daily show had been going on a few years, but it was kind of you know, getting its footing. Right. And, and I think nine 11 sort of galvanized it a bit because it was like a, a a major shock to the world, especially in America and particularly in New York City, uh, where people are like, oh, wow, this, you know, this isn't academic anymore. Right. <laughs> like when we're talking about terrorism. And I, I think there was almost a catharsis to it because when you're worried about like your home being pummeled yeah. by a plane, what you say on a comedy show is, is not <laughs> such relevance. And I think another important factor, Eric, was it was pre-social media. I mean, the internet was around and there were chat rooms, but I mean, you could say something and chances are only the people watching it at that time would, would hear about it. And maybe a few people would repeat it. I mean, the, the huge exception was the altercation with Dennis Leary, which we can get into later. But I think by and large, it was this perfect recipe of, you know, you had some established shows on the network. You had a climate which was ripe for kind of edgier material you could say things and they were just intended for the audience they wouldn't live in infamy on twitter yeah. or youtube so i think that's good i mean it was just such a beautiful time it, it was for it, comedy central and I, I didn't think of it as being kind of that that post 9 11 era it was like you, people had things in perspective so you thought okay yeah comedy show who's gonna make a big deal about that we just you know the, the towers yeah, yeah. just got blown up so <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, yeah i never thought of it that way that's a good point and, and obviously yes yeah, social media I mean, you see it now all the time that p people put a clip of a comedian up out of context and everyone wants to attack that comedian and, and then they lose their agents and they lose shows. Right. And you're like, well, that this, that's not what this was intended for. You, you can hear the people in the audience laughing. So obviously he wasn't saying this seriously. Obviously everyone in the room knew it was a joke, but yeah. now you're taking it out of context and treating it like it was this, this serious statement that this guy made. And, and now you're going to give him the consequences as if he was a senator making a speech. <laughs> Like, right, right. It wasn't Chuck Schumer up there. Right. And I think that's an, Chuck it, Schumer gets away with more than that. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> like uh, the it was a sort of a contest to push the envelope. Yeah. And that was another beautiful thing about not just tough crowd, but I think stand up at the time and, and, and to a large part stand up now. Yeah. I, I think some of the um, censorship issues are a little bit overblown, like when you're actually at a club and right. you're not like a huge name. So, I mean, I think it's still fine. Right. But that was like a time when you had these guys like Jim Norton and Patrice was brilliant at this, yeah. who, who like sort of got off on pushing it, yeah. you know, like where it wasn't about being safe. It was like, okay, I know I'm going to get in trouble and that's why I'm going to say it. It's not yeah. like I'm going to inspire, you know, I'm going to tiptoe as gingerly as I can. And then, you know, 18 hours later, I'm going to issue some perfunctory apology because, you know, someone who didn't watch the show on Twitter was mad at me. I mean, yeah. it, was, it was a very different climate. 
Dave Smith, who's a he's a New York comedian, he had this great tweet oh, yeah, the yeah, other yeah. day, and you know he basically said, you know, people who have fucked up backgrounds always tend to have a better sense of humor. You know, they're able to laugh at fucked up things, and that's so true. You see that with so many comedians. So many of them have either either they grew up with abuse or with parents or or just just they have their own mental issues, like like Greg had. And, and that's, I think that's why I was always into it. Like I was always kind of a weird kid growing up. I was a loner <laughs> and it's like, I don't know, being able to, to listen to these guys, like push the envelope, like you feel connected to them in a way. And there's some, that's why there was something magical about it. It's like, you're just, you're connecting with these guys in a way you can't really connect with anyone else. Cause they, they're outsiders in, in their own way. They're, they're pushing that envelope. They're on the, the outskirts of what's acceptable and they're kind of dipping their toe in the water to see how far they can go, how far they can go. And, and you, when doing that inevitably you're going to cross the line and you're going to say something you're not supposed to say and then you realize okay maybe i got to reel this back but that's that's the whole process of this oh it's the experimentation yeah and there's not just one line like someone can say something that you know gets me to touch my prayers you know so (laughs) that's sort of the beauty of it too it's it's not one size fits all let's talk at least at its best, I think. Exactly, exactly. Let's let's talk about the Dennis Leary episode because that's probably that's one of Greg's most famous moments, at least on Tough Crowd. Mm-hmm. Tell me that story. Sure. This this was one. You know, North Korea was in the news, right? right. <laughs> Even back way then. back when, yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is when uh, uh, Kim Jong Il was uh, Kim Jong Il was threatening um, like a nuclear attack. And it seemed like a little more credible than in, in, in prior years. And they had a tough crowd would generally have like one celebrity guests. And in this case, it was Dennis Leary, who was a pretty close friend to Colin Quinn. Um, and I don't think he knew Greg much at all. And so they were discussing it. And um, uh, there is the, 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 the quick background was uh, Dennis Leary says like, they've got uh, I'm oh, sorry, uh, Greg Geraldo planned a joke about a nail salon. So he was talking about like, maybe there's a nonviolent way to, to, to do this. He's talking about concessions. Like if, if uh, American girls agree to get their nails done twice a week, they won't bomb us. And then Dennis Leary interjects and he's like, whoa, there, there's a nonviolent way uh, to solve a problem with a country that we hate, that hates us, that's got nukes pointing at us. I don't think so. And then Geraldo goes, oh yeah, like Russia, example, that big Russian war. <laughs> right. And it was just like, because it was clear there's it no comeback planned. yeah and, and it was like a, you know he stepped away from his manicure joke yeah. and, and without missing a beat and and it wasn't even like in a mean way it was just yeah. so perfect yeah and, and quick and quick and and and, and smart but also yeah. funny and you're just yeah. like oh so there's this audible uh, it's like audible there's a noticeable silence where you're just like he got and it. actually yeah. i saw it live i mean we're, oh, we're wow. like and, and so i was just like is this happening right now? Like what? And, and then um, you were uh, in the studio. No, no, I meant like I saw it on TV. On TV. Like, okay, it wasn't okay. like a clip because it right. did sort of make the rounds right afterwards. And this was a time when like you had to go, I think, to Comedy Central. Like it, it was pre YouTube, so right. it, was, it was harder. And a lot of it was word of mouth, right? Um, about what happened. But then there was still more back and forth about like um, this is the guy that you know. Uh, finishes his homework. We're talking about Geraldo and says, is there any more? And then um, D- Greg said, well, maybe if you would have done a little more comedy writing, your show would still be on the air. So he, like Geraldo was dropping his comedy yeah. bombs and it was just yeah. like, boom, boom, boom. And it was like, oh my God. Yeah. I mean, I'm not doing it justice with my, 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 uh, uh, recon- no, no one could. Yeah. Um, but you know, ch- check it out. But the, the, one of the cool 
anecdotes from that, which I, which I learned from doing the research is uh, Dennis Leary had the chance to cut the segment out because he was a celebrity guest and he didn't. And yeah. so I think, you know, he did get a lot of flack after it because like, oh, he was trying to bully Geraldo and this and that. And I don't want to get into his motivations. The bottom line is he could have eliminated that segment and he didn't. And it was one of the most entertaining, yeah. not even just comedy moments. I'm going to say it's, it's, it's my favorite television moment I've ever seen. And, uh, you know, he, he, he greenlighted it. So good on you, Dennis Leary. Yeah. And and there is a, a decent version of that on YouTube. It's worth it's worth oh, yeah. looking up because again because that was what was so amazing about Greg is was that he could come back with these quips. I mean, he was great at writing jokes and reading you know prepared material, but he could also make those quick quips. And you're just like, how did that even? How did what he hear go through his brain so quickly that he could then formulate the perfect joke out the other end in a second? Right. I, like it, it's like most people were operating on like Windows ninety five, yeah. and he's on like you know. Mac 20 or something, you know, like yeah. it's just processor. Yeah. And you, you, was, and you can just see that. You can see that play out in real time when you, when you watch these shows. Yeah. Let's, so let's talk about, uh, Greg was his most mainstream success came from the comedy central roasts. Yeah. And so he was one of the best roasters of all time on, on these roasts that, that aired. And he was on a, like eight or nine of them and just crushed it every single time. And what was interesting reading your book is that so many people who knew Greg, they were disappointed, I think, is, is the way to say that, that he's best known for the roast. Like they felt like, oh, you know, he's, he, his standup was so much better and, and his other appearances were so much better. And the roasts were almost like the roasts were beneath him. Yeah. And I, it, I never got that sense from Greg that he felt that way, though. It seemed like he really enjoyed the roasts. And it, it more felt like, you know, I had this friend growing up who's a big fan of Kansas the band, and he hated. <laughs> He hated Dustin. that right. <laughs> people only knew Dust in the yeah. Wind or Carry On yeah. My Wayward Son. Like those are the only and he was like, those aren't even in their top twenty best songs. Like oh, I, sure. I, he was pissed off that those were the two songs they were known for. And it seems like more like that. Like they, you know, these people That's who really a knew Greg analogy. Yeah, yeah. They, they knew they knew that he had this wide volume of work and, and so they wanted people to appreciate all of that. But I didn't get any of that sense from Greg. Is that am I accurate in that that Greg really seemed to enjoy the roasts? Yeah, I, I think he, he not only enjoyed them, uh, it, it fit his pers persona because they're, they're very writing driven. And I, I think if you're a good joke writer, you have an advantage on the roast. You know, some people, they're more of a personality or can play characters and that doesn't translate as well on, on roast. And I, I think, you know, it was such a good forum for him because he could like just, you know, rapid fire, like yeah. bust out these jokes. But I, I think it was also after a while, he didn't love them as much. And, yeah. and it kind of waned a little bit because they are in a sense kind of formulaic and you, there's a structure to it. And sometimes comedians like that. And I think he, he might've tired a bit, but I think all in all, I mean, he, he put a lot of energy into it and uh, it was a huge platform for him. I, as you said, I think that's probably, yeah, um, outside of last comic standing and I, but I think more people probably know him from the roast like that's really what got his name out there right right I want to talk about his stand-up career because that was kind of the the foundation of, of everything that you know while he was doing all these shows he's also a touring headlining stand-up and you know I don't know if people really think about what that schedule is like and how tough it is to be gone every again he had a wife he had three kids and he's gone every weekend he's he's gone most nights to you know to t test Practice, out his material yeah, yeah. Talk a little bit about what that, what the road life was like for him and how that weighed on him. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, he, he, he wasn't, um, you know, the lead singer of Van Halen. Right, <laughs> right. He wasn't David Lee Roth. You know, like, uh, it, you know, as, as he progressed, the hotels were nicer. But, right. you know, you're at the Ramada Inn or something. You know, it's not, nothing luxurious. You had to do some, you know, five, six shows on a weekend, depending on where you are. Uh, you know, you're, you're it's, it's a grind. You know, I'm, I'm not equating it to like what your father dealt with or something like that. But, you know, you're, you're, it's you're similar. Eating, you're, it's lonely. You're eating yeah. bad. Uh, you know, it's fun to do the shows. And also he had, a, it's very well known. He had his drug and alcohol issues. And if, you, if you're an addict and if you're depressed, it's a terrible place to be. Um, I think he, he was a great, he's a great road comic. And I mean that as a huge compliment. Like, you know, I think that for me, and this is just my, my take, that's kind of the, one of the truest forms of comedy is perform at a club where not, most of the people don't know you and just entertain people from diverse backgrounds. And I think he could do that as well and better than anyone. And, and, and like that said, you know, he's, he, he wasn't Jim Gaffigan, you know, in terms of they weren't stadiums. Right. And I think he had a little bit of envy or maybe a lot of envy of, of people like that. I mean, it's, it's natural. Any performer has that. So on one hand, he killed it on when, 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 when showtime came, you know, there was, he was lights out. But then there's all that other stuff. There's the traveling, there's the eating poorly, there's the drugs, there's the just kind of malaise of like, I mean, most people have been on business trips and after yeah. th two days, you're like, this sucks. You know? Right, like, right, exactly. Well, uh, you, like, I remember reading that about Chris Farley is, is when he died, people were shocked. Any of these people, Robin Williams, you know, people are like, how could he have been so depressed? I mean, he was such a bright, bubbly figure. You're seeing them for such a small portion of the day. I mean, you're seeing them, you know, for a stand-up, you're seeing him for one hour out of 24, you know, and, and, and he's only performing on the weekend, so you're not seeing him at all during the week. And it is a weird, I only know it in a very small sense, you know, I've never headlined a club or anything like that, but there, you, you get this rush when you're on stage and you're performing, and then to drive home by yourself, and then it's quiet, oh, yeah. and it's dark, and it's late, it's like, to go from this high to this, like, super low, it's just a weird, weird feeling. And so it's easy to see how it's you, you it's hard to regulate yourself when you're doing that oh sure no i i've, I've done that you know i've had shows where you just feel like on cloud nine you yeah. feel like a million bucks afterwards and and thankfully i don't have the the drug and alcohol yeah. issues he did but i mean there are plenty of times when I, I i ran a show for a long time that i could walk to uh when i lived in la and you know people are buying you drinks and you're like oh i just had eight drinks today you know like right. like and it was like thankfully i wasn't yeah. doing it every day yeah but you can think like Oh, that that was fast. Right. <laughs> you know, right. You're, you're just know, not like, thinking about it. Yeah. It, 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 but it's kind of like this party mentality. And like imagine if that's all the time and multiply that by you know, and, and then you you have this predisposition where you know that those eight turn into eighty, right? Yeah. You know, you're just doing it through you know, it's it's uh, I, I understand it. I, I see how it's it's pretty easy to um, go down that road. One of the the hardest things to read in the book was was the idea of this imposter syndrome that Greg had because I see so many similarities in myself you know when I'm reading about Greg except he was just this smarter funnier version of me and better looking on top of that and he still I, felt... I don't know about that your facial hair he had he had some up here at least <laughs> <laughs> but but I mean I, I'm sure that contributed to to his his issues as well because like you said you're always comparing yourself to the people above you so greg was obviously super successful i mean he even 
he could have had you know regular success in the corporate world if he wanted to. He went to all the best schools and he was at the best law firm. And then he transitions over to comedy. And for a few years, I mean, he was one of the best. He wasn't maybe he wasn't Jim Gaffigan. He wasn't well. Louis C.K. came a little later, but he didn't have that kind of of cachet or that kind of name recognition. But he was still a successful comedian. He's on oh, all yeah. these big shows, and he still felt inferior. And did did he at the time like? Was he able to process that in his mind? Like, hey, I, I shouldn't be feeling like this. Like, did he seek therapy at all? In those, I know later on he went to AA and that sort of thing. But was was he going to therapy at all earlier on to try to work out some of these issues? He went to marriage therapy, uh, couples counseling somewhat <laughs> uh, on his second wife. You know, the, for his like 10-year marriage, like his long one. But he was such an active addict at the time that it didn't seem to really take yeah you know, a lot of the advice you, you know if if you're having these dependency issues you're not going to be a great listener <laughs> right <laughs> right know? or the sensitive husband you should be and then you know he, he he was an aa and for the most part he would he worked hard and, and that this is like the tragedy of i mean there's lots of tragedies it's like he was sober 90 plus percent of the time you right know? Like, right you exactly <laughs> But but the struggle was there 100% of the time. Yeah. So, you know, by and large, he did a good job of kind of keeping it at bay. But, like, it doesn't really matter when you have the one night where, yep. you know. But, and, the, the, and so the, the point is, like, I don't think he totally bought into the AA system. Yeah. But he worked really hard to be sober. Yeah. Yeah. And and like you said, when when you're on the road, anyone who's been on a business trip knows this. It's like it's so easy to fall off your routine, and you know, even even if he was home and he was on a good schedule and he's on a good place, you leave for the weekend, and yeah, you're just in a hotel by yourself, and there's a bar downstairs. Sure. It's so easy to just fall right off the wagon. And you don't have to be at the club till what seven seven thirty. Right. So I mean, you could be yeah, annihilated to do the all day, day before, yeah, and and you could still be all right. You know, right. for the most part, you can. Right pull it together right if you're at the club so i mean it's hard to say i mean as, as you know they're, they're alcoholics at law firms they're alcoholics oh, yeah. at the hospital that anywhere you know or or, or at you know i don't want to just say alcoholic there people with substance abuse problems sure. in every walk of life but i think stand-up kind of can make it worse because you can not be obvious longer right. like if you were working at the same law firm and you're getting there at 10 30 and like you just look haggard and you reek <laughs> right jägermeister if yeah. you drink that then you deserve whatever comes your way um but people are going to know a little more quickly than if you're sleeping it off in your ramada yeah in the hotel room and then you get to a club at seven and there's a club manager who doesn't really care if you're drunk or not who's like right. I'm, I'm not kissing him i don't know if he's right. booze or not like, it's easier well, to get a, it's easier to like trick people and there's so many comedians I, i'm not like this but there's so many comedians i know who say i can't go on stage without a couple of drinks or without getting high a little bit so it's like everyone there is kind of a little bit drunk or so it's you know it's kind yeah. of hard to tell oh this guy actually has a problem and this guy's just trying to take the edge off so he can go on stage and, and be goofy sure sure and of, i think that's an important point like it's, it's you can't really tell by looking at someone yeah. if, if he has a problem or not right yeah. right uh, one of the things that made me laugh in the book is is you talk about some of the media coverage of Tough Crowd, and it just it made me laugh because the you realize oh the media has always hated 
you know, these particular types of, of comedy. Like, you, you get into this this stuff these days. Is he, I, I, this happens to me where it's like you get caught up in like, oh, woke culture, and, and it's just been horrible the last five years that, you know, people are just attacking comedy. And then I'm reading, you know, what you wrote in the book about the New York Times saying <laughs> tough crowd. You know, in 2003, I think they wrote that you know, it was the bottom of the barrel or something yeah, when yeah. it came to comedy. Like, you know, Daily Show was the media darling. And, and it John was Stewart's- funny how, how they contrasted it so starkly uh, from – the Daily Show, yeah. which was like on the pinnacle of, you know, New York Times, you know, kind of like elite media types loved it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And Lo- you loved jo- Daily Show. <laughs> not right. 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 <laughs> and it, it was just, and it's, it was so such an obvious contrast because yeah, you have John Stewart and his and his suit on and the nice the nice background and everything, it's, and then you have very right produced. after that yeah. exactly tough crowd is just you know these guys in jeans on these couches just talking shit and it with such little production it's literally you could go to any bar and turn a camera on guys <laughs> and hear them arguing and it would look just like tough crowd that's what i loved about it and but did did greg did that get to greg at all like because these you know these guys at the new york times are the same guys he went to school with yeah anytime anytime yeah, I, yeah. I, anytime I, I read something from an insufferable journalist i kind of i look up their you know their linkedin or whatever to see their background almost every time they went to columbia journalism right school. right yeah, so yeah, yeah. I, so i you know greg probably knew some of these guys from a few school. at northwestern probably right yeah them. exactly like did that get to him at all like like did he did he in any way seek their approval even even subconsciously because you know he was this guy who did try to go through the hoops you know in in his legal practice i I, that's a really good point i don't think so i I mean like most people it's complicated or like most things it's a little complicated like he was very much blue collar in his bones yeah and even on the last episode of tough crowd he kind of called out the new york times and by calling it out maybe it shows it did kind of hurt him a little bit but he presented in a way I thought was very intelligent where he said like, yeah, there's, there is kind of a media elite and tough crowd was never for them. It wasn't about that. There's a, there's all these other people that love it and it's more for them. Yeah. And I think he said it very well, but even the fact that he brought it up kind of makes me wonder, like um, Colin Quinn said that um, Greg really liked blue collar people. In fact, he, he was one. I mean, that's what it like. He would prefer diners to like, you know, three-star Michelin restaurants, but they didn't really have a leadership role to him. So I think there's kind of a split where like if someone was maybe a, a Harvard professor or, a, you know, very white collar, he might right. listen to them a little bit more, but he wasn't them. Right. If that makes sense. So there was it the, makes total it, sense. It yeah. wasn't as clear as like, oh, F you white collar right. types. I'm blue collar. It's no, like, like most things. And I think this is why he was such a good comedian. He could really not only see, but understand multiple sides of an issue. And this is yeah. an example of that. Yeah. And, you know, he, you say, you know, he wasn't a, a leader type, but you do write about how he was sort of a, a mentor to younger comedians, you know, not in any formal sense of I'm going to be your mentor and here's what you need to do. Yeah. But it's, it is when you're a young new comic, there is something that that's so refreshing and and comforting to just have a, an older comic who knows what they're doing, who you look up to, just just be like, hey, you know, maybe try this with this joke, or or hey, you're doing this, maybe maybe think about the like, just just giving you like a little tip, just to let you know, hey, I was I was watching what you did, I thought you were good, and let me let me help you out a little bit here, or you know, try this club, talk to this person, like just those little things. You don't need to be, oh, I'm a leader. I, I am your mentor. But 
just to yeah. care enough about someone. It... I, mean, I think that's what I admire most about him. Cause I, I didn't, I met him a couple of times. I didn't know him personally, but I, several friends actually who opened for him or worked with them at clubs and time in and time again, they'd say like, he was so cool and, mm -hmm. and cool. Like one, he would give constructive advice, but I think sometimes when people always give advice, they're, they're kind of a dick yeah. in a way, you know, it's like, I'm here and you're here. And he was so clearly better than almost anyone. But then there was also plenty of times he would just say that was a good joke. Yeah. And didn't offer like, you should do it like this. And additionally, uh, he would go to lunch with them and just like hang out and just yeah. like be a dude. And not, not even just like, uh, he was that way with female comedians. I think at a time when it wasn't as common where you just kind of treat them as, as, as other performers. And that, I love that. You know, I mean, I, I think that's like the, the truest form of equality, you know, where you can just like not really differentiate so much on, on what you look like, your gender. And, right. and and so on one hand, he could give constructive criticism, but then on the other hand, he could just like spend time with you and shoot the breeze and make you feel like you're on the same level. And I think that's, that's just a very kind way of existing. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's, it's a side of Greg. I think you'll only see if you, you know, if you read the book, because that wasn't his onstage persona whatsoever. I got mine here. Yeah. Uh, and, you, you write about how he, he had a struggle with separating himself from his onstage persona and kind of what the impact of what he said might be. Like, you contrast that with Patrice. Patrice would say whatever he wanted to say. He didn't care if it hurt anyone. He was just, just going to say it. And you, Greg kind of had a little bit more of a struggle. Like he was a little bit worried. You know, he'd, he'd say what he wanted to say on stage, but then he would worry about hurting people's feelings. Like, oh, did I say something a little too mean? Yeah. Do you think that affected his ability to, to fully enjoy himself and enjoy what he was doing? It probably contributed to uneasiness. Yeah. But to his credit and to my personal enjoyment, I don't I don't think he let it stop him from saying anything on stage. Yeah. Which is just beautiful. Yeah. I mean, like I wish I had the courage sometimes. I mean I mean, I, I try to say what I want to say on stage, but I can't say hundred percent certainty like I have his level of just let it rip. Yeah. I don't, I don't think I do. I mean, I'd like to, but that's something I struggle with. And, and it's nice that he, um, he had that, but then it's also kind of sweet that he had that concern, but I think that that wears on you. And, and Patrice, I think had a, a little better, almost professional separation yeah. uh, of the, that dynamic. Yeah. It, it, it's hard to not compare contrast him with Patrice because they, they did come up at the same time. They were the two guys, my two favorite guys on tough crowd. And they, they had a very similar style on stage. Comedy Central just had a, a Patrice doc not that long ago. It was the first time actually I watched Comedy Central in like a decade outside uh -huh. of South Park. But it, they did a great job with it. One of the interesting lines, I forget who said it, but they were talking about how, you know, one of the reasons why Patrice didn't have as much success in, in Hollywood or in, in shows and movies as he probably should have, being given how funny and talented he was, was they said Patrice acted as if when he died... They were going to play a video of every decision he had ever made, and he was going to have to justify that decision to his friends. You know, he'd be sitting around <laughs> with his friends, and he would have to justify everything he did. And that, you know, it's, it's that that idea of like he just never wanted to sell out, and and so yeah. he was going to be Patrice one hundred percent, no matter what. You know, they talk about him being on The Office, and he had a great little run on The Office, but uh, you know, I don't think they ever went into the details. But something there was some sort of fight, and and he broke away, and he could have been a star on that show. But he, he was, oh, yeah. Patrice was too Patrice all the time. 
it was like the old Chappelle skit. He, he it, when keeping it real goes wrong. Exactly, like, exactly. And I don't was did Greg have something similar? Because it, it seems like kind of a New York thing. And you know, Greg yeah. obviously tried to get on so many shows that that weren't successful, or create shows of his own that weren't successful. And I don't know if it was because he had that Patrice thing where he wasn't didn't fully kind of want to surrender to the Hollywood machine, or was yeah. it something else? Well, I think there was a lot of that. Like, um, you know, he's kind of an old school comic. Like, not not trying to, um, you know, play like the Hollywood game. You know, yeah. not, probably not wanting to look like a, a sellout or quote unquote sellout. And but by the same time, he was more congenial. Like he, and I think that was just his natural personality. Like he was, his default was friendly. He was he was friendly to people. And I think, you know, he kept getting chances. He got lots of chances. And I, I think it was really his. Uh, addiction issues that prevented it from you know kind of like john stewart said this is like yeah. when one pilot didn't work he was at the top of the list for the second one so I, I think on one hand he was like patrice in that he was a stand-up first and he didn't necessarily like the hollywood culture and playing the game and he wasn't slick but there's a huge difference in my opinion in, in that he was he could be welcoming to people and um you know play I, I'm kind of contradicting myself, but in a sense, he could play the game a little bit more right. than Patrice could. Was there a moment when when Greg like realized, okay, I need to get help for these issues, or, or was it everyone else pushing him to get help? I think there's there are several moments, and I think one was, gosh, I think it was in '95. There was a pretty clear one. I think he got it tattooed. Um, I, have to, I have to double check. I'll, sure. I'll check with with Wayne, our co-author. Um, so there there were a handful of times where it was pretty definitive, almost like a demarcation. Like, okay, now I'm I'm committed to being sober. But it, it's kind of telling when there when there are multiple. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, this moment, this moment, this moment, yeah. versions of that. But that's you know, I'm certainly no expert on depression and and alcohol and drug dependency. But I've learned a lot about it from researching this that that's that's the that's the norm you yeah. know sometimes people are fortunate where they commit to sobriety and it takes one time and they're clean and sober for the rest of their lives and more power to them but that's that's rare yeah. a lot of them you fall off the wagon you have slip-ups you have relapses and it's a it sucks yeah and, yeah. I, and but but so I, I think he yes he did want to and I, and I think he really was a great father and he wanted to be a good dad and he wanted to be a good husband and he wanted to be a good, all these things. But I, I think as time went on, it's almost like you're climbing a mountain that is growing as you're climbing it. Like the longer you're an addict, the harder it is to get to the peak of it and, and stop it. Yeah. And, I, and I think this, this is one of the saddest parts of, of researching the book and writing it is I think there was part of him that thought I'm not going to beat this. Like I know the odds, I'm smart enough to realize like most people have been doing it for this long. Yeah. Don't become sober. And that was so sad for me to even hear. Yeah. And that, that does seem to be a, a with any type of addiction, it's, it's the person has to, no, no matter what kind of outside influence you have or, or how much resources you have to get help. It's like, you have to internally be able to say, okay, I can beat this. I'm going to beat this. And, and if you don't have that in you, it, it, feel, it seems like it's a matter of time. Yeah.
Yeah. And it's, it's, I can't tell you how many times over the last year or two that I, you know, something happens in the news and I'm just like, I wish Patrice and Greg were here to debate this. Like, I would oh just God, yeah. love to just see them sitting across from each other yelling at each other. I, I can't tell you. I think about that all the time. They, they were such a big influence on me. Uh, yeah. And especially, like, I think Patrice, like, he would not care. Would yeah. people, you know, like he wouldn't worry about getting flagged on Twitter or like, yeah. I mean, like if anything, it would help his brand. And I, right. and I, I think Geraldo wouldn't care as much, but who knows? I could see him maybe just kind of as he matures, just getting a little quieter. And, and right. again, I don't think he'd be quiet, but he might just be like, yeah, it's not worth right. this, this time. But I don't, I, Patrice would just have a field day with it. Yeah. Before we go, I want to ask you quickly about Can We Take a Joke? It was That was a documentary you worked on with your brother, Ted, about really the current state of comedy. Uh, I just want to ask you really quick you know, about that, how how that came to be and what kind of impact that's because that, that seemed like I got a, a big promotion and, it got, and a lot of people saw that at least when it was first. I think it came out in 2018 or 2019. No, I think it was like. 2015 or oh, was it was it before 15 wow or 16 okay yeah. okay I think, uh but yeah I, I it was just such a great documentary i again that one you can actually find on amazon on i think it's probably still on itunes that that one's out there i highly suggest it for anyone but can you tell me just a little bit about the genesis of that and and you know your work on that sure well it was very much a work for my brother and his wife first you know i i helped but it was their baby their project but it was kind of i think an Nick DiPaolo, in a lot of ways, uh, was the spark for it because this was when I was uh, living with my, my other brother Ted. Uh, we were at the Comedy Cellar, and uh, DiPaolo was on stage and uh, just destroying it. Like he was a beast there, and uh, there was so, some members of the audience were I don't know not not as into it. Yeah. And he goes, I know, you uh, kind of teasing him like let's go to a comedy club and take the joke seriously <laughs> and that may, meant a lot to ted yeah and it was i think it just stuck with them and then so years later he's obviously into free speech and um he's not a comedian himself but he's very funny and like uh he would help me with a lot of the comedy stuff i was doing and and he just liked it you know he, he knows a lot of comics and, and he's a great writer and uh so it kind of made sense for him and his wife courtney to do this and so I, I think my biggest contribution was uh, I was friends with Christina or am with, with Christina Pazitsky okay. who was the narrator yeah and there was always some common and, and Kareth Foster who had a big uh, role in it so I would kind of bring comics to him or or like if he, if he was trying to get someone to do a certain thing you know kind of go through me so that was kind of the uh the con no I think if I had a different last name I, I could get more <laughs> you know but you know sure. that makes sense like I like if your name's Balak, you're probably not going to be uh, widely featured in anything. But it was it was something uh, you know they did a great job, and I, I was happy to be uh, a part of it. Yeah, I, I loved it. And again, I recommend you getting that anywhere you can find it. I also recommend you get Greg Gerardo comedian story. Uh, again, Greg was one of my favorite comedians. You you did him such justice with his book. I it really it was a page turner. It was fascinating. I learned. I thought I knew a lot about Greg. I learned so much from this book. Uh, Matt Balker, is there is there anything else coming up? Are you writing any other books? Is any other plans to to do yeah, more? Yeah, I comedy mean, we're world? we're always we're always working on something. Um, the best way you can follow about book news, follow us on, on social media. It's at Greg Geraldo Book, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and I'm uh, on Facebook Matt Balker, Twitter at Maddie B Game. It's M E T T Y, the letter B G A M E, and that that'll be. Uh, I'll, I'll post about future shows. I, I'm for those in the San Diego area. I'm I'm, I'm actually really excited about this. Uh, if if you can come out, I'm going to be part of a 
a show is through a, a military uh, charity called Save the Brave. They're sponsoring it. Um, it's going to be a kick-ass comedy show. We're going to do it at least once a month, probably more. Um, the proceeds are going to go to this charity, but it's uh, there's a new venue in Temecula, California called Bastards Cantina, and um, I love live comedy, so I'm going to be a big part of that. So if you're, oh, that's if you're awesome. around, come check it out. I'll definitely promote that. I'm, I'm excited. But Thank you. There, there's such a great connection between the military and comedy. I can tell you there's oh, yeah. so many yeah. people in the military love you know the style of humor that, that Greg did, that Patrice did, that you do. Uh, so I'm sure that's going to be a huge hit. That's, that's great that you're doing that. I hope that. so. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Matt. I really appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks, Eric. Bye.